0: What we want to look at now is just a basic issue that this whole uh, change uh, that happened uh, in the 4th century, uh, how does that inform us about the way we look at end-time prophecy? In other words, are the prophecies, especially of the Old Covenant, but also the prophecy of Revelation, are they to be viewed as an allegory of the church so that we can take them and apply them just as general spiritual principles or are we to understand that these are literal predictions of future events for many many years i assumed that the the view that these are just allegorical passages and we of the church we're spiritual Israel, and so we get to simply apply these passages in any kind of spiritual way that would appeal to us or seem to apply to our present need. Um, let, let me give an example of that here. Here's one of my favorite passages on prayer, and it's from Isaiah 62. I have posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. So what I have done countless times is just to take the name of whatever city I was in, Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. Okay, we, we will cry out to you day and night until you make Richmond a praise in all the earth. And so that we're using the scripture of the Old Testament as a model or as a as an allegory or an example or whatever, but we're going to just apply it in any way that fits our need of the moment. The The thing that's troubled me more recently is that this passage in context, the context of Isaiah, fits in with a whole lot of other uh, passages that specifically talk about what God's intentions for the city of Jerusalem are. So that in addition to using... God's word as a lamp to our feet, it also has the uh, function of conveying his heart for the future. What are his plans? What does his kingdom entail? And Isaiah is full, uh, just chock full of passages that are promises of God, very specific promises about the future of Jerusalem. So are we to simply blind ourselves to all of that and say, no, now it's just the church? And it seems to me that what we need to do is to look for God's intent. In other words, do we really have the right to treat Scripture in whatever fashion we desire? because we're Christians, or because we just decided to do it that way. would it be wise for us to ask God what he intended for these passages so that we are sure we're connecting with his heart and what he wanted, what his will is? And here we come up with some very startling words. From Isaiah, let me read you God's own statement about this. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. And then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron, and your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened, I announced them to you, so that you could not say, my idols did them, my wooden image and my metal God ordained them. You have heard these things, look at them all, will you not admit them? From now on, I will tell you of new things, of hidden things unknown to you, they are created now, and not long ago, you have not heard of them before, so you cannot say, yes, I knew them already. Here, God is himself putting himself on the side of predictive prophecy. He's specifically saying that in Isaiah, he is going to reveal the future. In fact, Isaiah is the first of many prophets who are going to be revealing the future. And I don't know about you, but it seems to me this is pretty unique in the history of the world. Uh, Isaiah is going to be a prophet who gives to the kings he's associated with specific detailed information about what is going to happen in the rise and fall of empires. I can't remember a single United States president who has ever had someone like this next to him. You know, kind of the local prophet who says, this is what you need to do because God is going to do such and such. Um, It seems to me this is unique. And yet, somehow or other, Christian people have almost seemed to be embarrassed about the fact that this kind of prophet was speaking all throughout history within the context of the people of Israel. And so what I would like to do now is to show you a chart to try to recapture the nature of Hebrew prophecy. Um, the, The Hebrew prophet was a moral watchman. And for many years, that was their main duty is to if the king sins, then it's his duty to go to the king and tell him he sinned and invite him to repent. And that was basically it for many, many centuries. But then along comes Isaiah. And with Isaiah in 740 BC, it's like God is upping the ante. He's, he's saying, I, here's another whole thing that I want you to do for me. And so now he's going to begin to fill his prophets with scenes and visions of the future." So now here, I've got, uh, see if we can see this here, a timeline. I'm not going to give you timelines because I don't believe, uh, for example, a timeline of uh, the book of Revelation. If you look at Isaiah, there's no timeline. Um, Isaiah puts the story of his call to be a prophet in Isaiah 6, whereas he tells the story of, well, he begins to tell the story of the end times in Isaiah 2. Now, with us, We'd, we'd organize things differently. If it were me, uh, you know, I'm a writer, and I believe in, in writing things in an orderly fashion. We'd, I would tell Isaiah, Isaiah, you need to just put this part about your conversion and your, your um, calling in chapter 1, verse 1. Start with that, Isaiah, and then put your end-time prophecies at the end of your book. But Isaiah, he would look at me and he would scratch his head and he would say, why would you do it that way? See, because the Hebrew prophet was not a linear thinker. And arranging things in timelines were not important to them. That just was not their culture. It was not the way they thought. We can arrange a timeline for Isaiah because many of the things that he prophesied have now happened. And so we know the chronological order of these prophecies and we can put them in a timeline. So that's what I've done. And I I just want to demonstrate to you here um, the amazing prophetic nature of Isaiah's writings. Okay, so here we are, 740 BC, Isaiah is called as a prophet. Okay, it's the year that King Isaiah died, so we know exactly when that was. Five years later, in 735 B.C., he predicts the defeat of Israel by Assyria. That's the northern kingdom is going to be defeated by Assyria. Then three years later, all right, 732 B.C., What he said happens. So now Isaiah is starting to get a track record. People are beginning to realize something's going on here. Now we move to 701 BC, and Isaiah's been around for 30 years. So track record has extended, and he's in his late middle age right now. Assyria comes along and besieges Jerusalem. And Isaiah tells King Hezekiah exactly what the outcome is going to be. You'll read about that in chapters 36 and 37. It's one of the most inspiring stories in the Bible. In 680 BC, Isaiah is martyred. Uh, we don't have a biblical record of that, but what we, what we know from tradition is that he was sawed in two under the reign of King Manasseh. You know, there was a price to be paid for being a prophet of God. So in 680 BC, that's the end of Isaiah's prophetic ministry, but his prophecies live on. Now, here's the point now. He prophesied things that would happen after he died. Did those things come true? Yes, they did. 586 BC, Babylon will become an empire and defeat and exile the Jews to Babylon. So that you can find out in chapter 39, verses 6 to 7, and a whole lot of other verses in Isaiah deal with that. In 539 B.C., the Medo-Persian Empire defeats Babylon and then King Cyrus lets the Jews return to build, rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. You can read about that in chapter 44 and 45. And Cyrus is named as a king. All right, the, neither the Babylonian nor the P- M- M- Medo-Persian Empire have even come into existence during Isaiah's lifetime, and yet he's naming kings and telling exactly what they're going to do, things that they did do. In 30 AD, the suffering servant will die in atoning death, pierced for our transgressions. You'll read about that in chapter 53 of Isaiah. All right, now I've drawn a line because those are the things that happened long ago in what we call Bible times. You know, we go to our Sunday school classes and we study the Bible and we sort of put that in a separate place in our minds, but now we're living in reality. So we've got Bible study and we've got the Bible stories that we learned those are back there but now we're dealing with reality as though this were not reality. this is just Bible stories. But what we do in our heads we've got we've got two separate places you see but they're not separate places for God. you see God's redemption history just keeps on going. So we've got a we've got to untack this, Uh, a mental separator in our heads that separates Bible from reality. And we've got to realize that the next one of Isaiah's prophecies is happening right now, in the present. There will be a great ingathering of Jews from all nations at the end of the age. He will gather them back to the promised land. And you'll read that in chapter 43, verses 4 to 9. You see, nothing has changed. It's still just God working out history. Then we come to the future. There will be a day of wrath against all nations who will align themselves against the King of Kings. You'll read about that in chapter 62 verses 1 to 6. It's a rather ominous prophecy. That will be followed by the king's reign from Jerusalem. The king will come back and he will reign from Jerusalem. All right, that's chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, chapter 60, and chapter 65. The question is. Are these prophecies allegories of the spiritual life for all Christians everywhere, or do they also have specific predictive value about geopolitical events that Isaiah has had revealed to him by the living God? And if that is so, then wouldn't it be a good idea for us to study what God has revealed about the near future? Let's read, for example, a very startling prophecy. I think this is one of the most startling prophecies in the entire Bible. Listen to this. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked. The women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountain moving north, Half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Aziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold, or frost. It will be a unique day, without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, There will be light. On that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea, in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and His name, the only name. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this. And to me, he's not describing a spiritual principle that we can just apply to the church. This is talking about the return of the king, and it's talking about what he wants to do. Won't you walk with me through the exploration of, of what he promises just a little more deeply than most Christians have done in recent years.